Hello there, you're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host. Today, I am speaking with Matt Garbarino, Director of Marketing Communication at Cincinnati Incorporated, one of the oldest machine tool manufacturers in the U.S., producing press brakes, laser cutting systems, shears, PM presses, and additive equipment. Cincinnati Incorporated was the first company to use big area additive manufacturing or BAM technology to print the world's first 3D printed car, the Strati from Local Motors, and then later a Ford Cobra. Matt manages all marketing, branding, and communications initiatives for the company. Before his second term at Cincinnati Incorporated, he served as president and COO at machinetools.com and founder and CEO of thefabzone.com a B2B website that matches buyers and suppliers in the metal fabrication industry. He also worked as sales engineer at Sigma Tech and as manufacturing engineer in the Delco chassis division at General Motors. He earned his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering technology at Purdue University and pursued an MBA at Wright State University. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Would you provide our listeners with a highlight reel of Cincinnati Incorporated, beginning with its founding in the 1890s as Cincinnati Shaper Company? Yes, Cincinnati Incorporated, as it is today, it was called the Cincinnati Shaper Company uh, back in those days, um, was founded in downtown Cincinnati, and it actually started by building what's called a shaper. And for those that don't know what a shaper is, because you don't see them uh, very often in manufacturing today, it was kind of the predecessor to the milling machine. So essentially it was a chip removal machine. And so these machines were built one at a time. It really wasn't a factory type setting. It was more of a custom type machine order. And they were built in downtown Cincinnati for decades. Uh, Perrin March uh, was the founder of the company. It's actually still a family owned company, fourth generation owned um, today. And the company's uh, now over 120 years old. So it, it, it has the name Cincinnati uh, incorporated today, which that transition happened in the 50s. And also the facility uh, just outgrew itself in downtown Cincinnati and then moved to the west side of uh, Ohio near the Indiana border at a town called Harrison, Ohio, which is today where all the manufacturing happens for Cincinnati Incorporated. And as you said, it's uh, basically metal fabrication equipment, but also additive manufacturing equipment as well. And how have those metal fabrication uh, offerings expanded over the decades? So the transition from uh, really going from a, a machine, a company that made machinery for that type of uh, application happened in the 20s. So although Cincinnati Shaper Company was building shapers well into the uh, 60s, uh, metal fabrication machinery got introduced in the 20s. And so in the 19, early 1920s, what's called a press break, it was a mechanical press break. That's a machine that's essentially used to bend metal. Uh, was designed and, and made available. And it actually just at that time, it was a very innovative type design where it used a flywheel and clutch design to actually move a ram up and down to bend the metal. Um, and then not too far after that, the, the first mechanical shear was introduced. And that's simply uh, a machine that's used to cut metal. So the two go hand in hand, the, the mechanical shear, and we say mechanical because today we don't make them that way. They're hydraulics and what have you. But the mechanical shear, mechanical press brakes became really uh, the, the staple for the company in the 20s. In fact, to this day, I think we still service one of the first shears that were built in the 20s. It's still uh, in our serial number records that we provide parts for. Wow. How, how unique is it in the industry, uh, you know, to, uh, to be, uh, I mean, be, uh, you know, a, a build-to-order 
um, you know, machine tool manufacturer that produces its own linear motors, controls, and software. It's amazing the spectrum of technology because, um, you know, on one hand, you know, we're, we're modern with the, the, the offerings we have today in laser cutting and press brake technology with control, CNC controls, linear drive motors, um, and all that kind of thing. But on the same, you know, token, you know, our parts department, our support department is talking to people that have equipment that date back decades and decades. Um, and at that time, those machines were, you know, cutting edge, you know, with the technology that they had. So, you know, we can have our support team or our parts team talking to somebody in one moment that, you know, is about a, a machine that was built in the 40s, 50s, whatever, all the way to the next phone call could be a situation where we're talking to someone that recently bought a machine with a completely different kind of technology on it. So it, it's, it's challenging. It, it's, there's a story behind all of it because of the, the spectrum of, of applications. Um, but it can be challenging trying to support that wide array of equipment that, you know, dates back because of safety standards and how things were made back then and um, what have you. So, but, but that's been a, really our kind of our mission is to make sure that we, we, best we can, we support everything we've made. That's, that's a lot of staff time. It is. And, uh, you know, it, it's challenging when, you know, if you get a call from somebody that has a 1930s machine uh, that you haven't heard from in decades and they need a part, and it's not like something you keep on the shelf, right? So it, 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 we first have to see, can we still make it? And, and so instead of going into the computer database and pulling up a print, we have to go to our archive room and pull up, you know, Mylar drawings uh, of it. And we have to examine, okay, when's the last time we made this part? Is it something that can be made internally at Cincinnati? Because we, you know, we, we manufacture a lot of our own parts, but some we have to outsource. And if we can't make it or whether we can or can't, you know, we have to basically look at it as a unique job. Um, you know, we got to quote it, have a lead time to it uh, and do the best we can to support that customer. Um, I learned that the first linear motor driven laser cutting system was produced at Cincinnati. So um, what other innovations, including BAM, of course, has the company embraced over the years? Well, it's, it's interesting that when you, when you look at the answer to that question, we have in our showroom uh, what we call a patent wall. And there are these eight and a half by 11 uh, patents uh, that are each framed. And there's, I think there's you know, over 100 of them on this wall that date back to the early days all the way to like what you said. We have a patent on our linear drive technology for the lasers, which was in the 90s. Uh, we have patents for uh, additive manufacturing, which you were referring to, the large-scale additive manufacturing. But when you look back to the days, things that might seem kind of basic or trivial, like, for example, a flywheel and clutch design on a mechanical press brake, that was a patented design back in the 20s. So it, it's interesting to see the legacy of the company and the innovation, and you just you see it kind of chronological order. You know, every decade there were um, multiple patents that were happening with the technology at the time, and that continues today with the new technology we have. Now, even with uh, the long history of, of machines that uh, that the company has developed, the, the one of the statements on the website is that uh, it demonstrates a young outlook. So. Um, so how does that connect with, you know, building and innovating new products? Well, what we, you know, the approach we try to take today is, you know, we're selling to an audience. Um, obviously, we're a business to business company selling to manufacturing companies. But, but the person that's buying our machine can really be on the spectrum of, you know, a young engineer just out of college, you know, and they've now been assigned a project to build a part or they have a project they're involved in. Um, and how they want to design and how they want to operate the equipment is vastly different than the other audience we might have on the other end of the spectrum, which might be someone in their 60s. And how they want to operate a machine or how they would approach designing some two vastly different things. So 
we first have to you know take into account all of that, but we also look at the focus of where are the trends going. You know, as far as um, we have a we we have young engineers coming in and. And, you know, we have a gaming, you know, uh, community these days and how kids are growing up. So we, we look at how we interface with the machines. We want to make it very um, um, interactive, you know, as far as the graphical user interface and touch screens and what have you, because it lends itself to that younger audience. And, and we would just at the end of the day, we want to make it easy for them to learn how to use the tools to create things. Um, so that they're in an environment that they're comfortable with and what they learned on so that the same kind of technology, you know, that might've been even used years ago, how you get to that end result is going to be much different than it would have been, you know, many years ago. So we have to look at the audience coming into the uh, workforce today and, and, and make sure we design designing machines that can cater to that. With that spectrum of new technologies and you're bridging it with the legacy machines that are still in operation, you know, how do you, how do you connect all of those together with uh, you know in, in terms of you know the the, the, the catchphrase is digital integration? Yeah, I you know what's interesting about the technology disparity today, which is obviously just leaps and bounds ahead of what it was decades ago. It can be interesting when you look at a part that might come off a press break today. You could have made that same part in the 1950s, okay, and it would look the same. And I could take it off of a new machine today that has CNC controls and all this fast setup technology on it, and the parts look the same. The difference is backtracking and looking, how were those parts designed? How were they, how was the setup of the machine done? How fast was it done? How quickly was the part made on the machine? So when you look at those in parallel, the end result might be the same, right? Um, so from the standpoint of an old Cincinnati press break versus a new one, uh, you got to the same finish line, but how you got there was drastically different and much harder in the old days today. So it's interesting when you look at the comparison of, you know, the legacy type technology that we support in machines versus today that, you know, you're at a fraction of the time from design to part today than you were even a decade ago, um, let alone decades and decades ago. And we see that in shops, you know, we'll go into manufacturing companies that might have um, a lot of our older mechanical press brakes and they're kind of dedicated setup machines for one or two parts. And then you'll watch how they change those machines over and it could take hours to do it uh, versus they'll get a new machine side by side. And I've actually seen this in shops and you see how they are able to change this new machine over to another job in minutes, another job in minutes, another job in minutes, and process each of those parts significantly faster and watching it right next to the Lego machine. Both are making money for the company. Both maybe still have an application, but you're certainly not going to want to use that older technology if you're out changing your jobs over and all that and you're trying to get fast throughput. But if it's a dedicated job and you're running long, long runs, that, that machine might suffice for your needs. And how much do you attribute that to Industry 4.0 with, with your customers? Well, that certainly uh, is the trend and the, you know, the buzz in the industry is, you know, um, people that are buying this kind of equipment and spending the kind of money they do, you know, it's all about, you know, optimizing everything you have out of that investment. So you want to know, you know, how many parts are coming off that machine? Is it down? Is it running? Is it idle? Um, and so our job is to be able to provide, um, you know, that information easily to that user so that they can not only monitor what's happening with their equipment and that's done through, you know, the web or an app or what have you, um, but also what do you do with that data? Because part of the thing with, you know, industry 4.0 is you now can have all this data at your fingertips, but you got to know, well, what do I do with it? And, you know, what we're working on is to try to develop um, tools and resources. So now that you have this data, we want to help you make better decisions. So, hey, we find that, you know, the data has shown that your machines are idle during these hours, you know, and that might help you make some business decisions on how you want to take new jobs and to say, you know what, 
now that I know that my machine is only cutting this many parts in a day or is only running this many hours, which you might not have known before, it helps make some decisions on how you want to utilize that equipment for future opportunities. So um, it, it, it's changed everything because it's all about real-time information and accurate information about what's happening you know, with the machines on their shop. And have you had to do any realigning or have there been any, any uh, hiccups related to COVID-19? Well, certainly, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, uh, you know, our business certainly slowed down from it. And, and part of it is, you know, I think people are just cautious when things change, whether it's an election year, whether it's, you know, a pandemic like this. I mean, you know, this is obviously un, unseen for, for our generation. Um, but sometimes businesses don't necessarily slow down, but they're cautious in what they do because they don't know the future, right? So we see a lot of that slow down. On the flip side, there are customers we have that are actually accelerating. I mean, they might be supplying uh, conveyor manufacturers, so warehouses for Amazon and what have you, or maybe they're doing the um, all the, the shelving and boxing for, um, you know, UPS trucks and Amazon trucks. So, you know, there are certain segments of the industry because of this pandemic that actually they're booming. Um, but for us, you know, we have to, you know, our business overall has dropped down some, um, not as bad as many other businesses. I think we've done pretty well because we also support a lot of equipment that's still in operation. So because we have such a huge install base, we're still offering training. We deliver the training a little differently. We've been doing more remote training, you know, be, because of distances and all that. Um, but, you know, our parts department, you know, providing parts for machines and tech support, you know, that hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, but obviously new machinery sales has, has dropped down a little bit during this time. Yeah, that, that's what we've been seeing in the economic forecasting, but uh, you're, you're right. It's just shifted to some of the other companies. And so um, let's, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about your career, uh, that this was the original reason why I, I asked you to be on the show, because we started talking about engineering technology. Uh, but let's start with, you know, how did you end up in marketing and communications? And secondly, do you think that that's a viable career for engineers? I'm assuming since you're still in it, that's the case. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of interesting how your career path sometimes uh, dictates what you do versus what you think you're going to do. I mean, when I went to school uh, at Purdue and you know I studied mechanical engineering technology, it was always in my mind that I was going to be serving as uh, an engineer in some capacity, and that's certainly the job interviews I had going out of college. Um, how I kind of stumbled into the field of marketing really started with stumbling into sales and. Uh, ironically with the company I work for now, which was at the time um, I was working on my first job out of school was as a manufacturing engineer at a GM plant, a Delco chassis plant in Dayton, Ohio. And, um, you know, I was doing what most engineers were doing at that time, you know, you know, taking an entry level engineering position, manufacturing engineering position. But that plant at the time, uh, a year after my employment there was marked to potentially be closed due to a downturn in the automotive industry. So I started looking for other opportunities and happened to stumble across Cincinnati Incorporated through a, an employment agency that contacted me and said, hey, this company is hiring engineers, but for sales, uh, you know, to do outside sales. And I thought, well, I, you know, I, I went to school to be, you know, doing technical things, never thought I would do it. I ended up doing the job because it was a technical type sale as, you know, high end machinery as far as very sophisticated. Um, the training program was very detailed and um, so I thought I'd take a risk with it and, and it wasn't a, you know, a high risk, high return salary. They gave us base, you know, salary and a company car and all this stuff. So I was like, Hey, you know, what can go wrong? Turns out you go into it. I was talking to engineers every day. That was my audience. It was, you know, owners of companies, it was engineering managers, manufacturing engineers. So I could relate to the people I was selling to very easily. And I liked the flexibility and freedom. And, and quite honestly, I think having an engineering degree, 
provides a good foundation, you know, for a lot of jobs. I, I, ha- I was sitting on a panel at Valparaiso a number of years ago, which was, uh, I have a friend of mine that's a professor there, and the, the goal was to bring people who had an engineering degree or engineering technology degree, but were not doing that in their, in their, in their current career. So they had an accountant, they had an attorney, they had me, you know, a marketing person. And I forgot what the fourth one, but the common thread with all of us when we talked to everybody was that engineering helped provide a, a base, which was to help you solve problems and, and, and give you um, kind of a guideline on how to solve problems. And in almost every job you have, you're trying to solve a problem. It, it, you know, it, it may be a different kind of problem than, you know, an engineer faces, but, you know, if I'm selling somebody something, my problem is I've got to, I, I have to convince this person and get their mind share. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of um, uh, preparation it can do for any career to give you a foundation on how to organize, how to think, how to approach situations, how to overcome obstacles um, that I think a lot of um, maybe education majors wouldn't do. Do you think that the uh, focus on engineering technology versus uh, engineering uh, provided you with certain skills that you may not have had otherwise? I think from in my situation and certainly a lot of my friends who were in engineering technology, I think there were a lot of advantages that education gave that the traditional engineer didn't have. Um, so for example, you know, our, you know, all the classes I took had a, you know, a lab associated with some applications uh, piece of it so that we weren't just understanding the theory behind it. We were applying it. So if we were studying welding, you know, we literally learned how to weld, you know, and learned all the different types of welding and same with, you know, building molds. We were pouring molten metal into a sand mold, um, you know, machining and, you know, learning how to write a program. So everything had that so that it, that, that you didn't just read about it and understand it from a theoretical standpoint, you could actually apply it. Um, and, and I think by doing that approach, it, it, it just, I think, and that was actually the whole, at least in the case of where I went to school, the reason the program was even developed there was because industry was saying to, to education, hey, we need these students coming out to have, have more hands-on application experience because they're not getting it. And so really the School of Technology at Purdue, which is now you know, named differently, but it was really a reaction to industry saying we want that. And so they delivered it. Um, and communication was a big part of that too. I know you're asking about the whole communication piece. As you well know, I mean, in anything you do, effective communication is essential. And um, whether you're an engineer or you're in marketing or sales or, or, or whatever it is, I mean, that's a key thing. And that was kind of a cornerstone of all the engineering technology classes because in addition to having the application piece, we also had to present all the time what we were doing to our classmates. Um, so we were constantly uh, preparing presentations, um, at that time, it was kind of pre-PowerPoint, so we did it a little bit differently than how we do it today, but it got us in the habit of not only learning the technology from a hands-on approach, but how to present it to others and explain what we were doing in an effective way, and, um, and that's benefited me from, from day one. I mean, I, I've always seen that as um, one of the most important aspects of my job is taking what I do and, you know, making sure that it's understood and disseminated among everyone else in a way that's, you know, that, that, that's effective. What advice would you give new graduates in engineering technology today? I, I think the, the biggest thing is, um, is to take that mindset and continue it. I, I, you know, learning never stops. It, just because you have the degree and your structured classes end, 
now I think is so important. And this isn't just for engineering technology. I would say this of anybody. I mean, I, I think that you have to continually find a way to learn and it may not be in a classroom, but, but find a way to, to find new skills and, and challenge yourself because the, the best things that can happen is when you're doing something you're uncomfortable with or that you don't feel comfortable with is it, get out of that comfort zone because you, you grow in so many ways. You don't just learn what it is you're trying to do, but because you're maybe uncomfortable or it's something in your comfort zone, you just, you just develop more. So if you can have the mindset to continue to learn something, um, whether it's on your own online or going to a class or, or going to a seminar or webinar, whatever it is, there's so many today, there's so many avenues to, to do that. Just don't wait for someone to, to tell you to do it. Find it on your own, you know, find ways to, to learn on your own. And I think that if you can keep that going, you know, you'll always be fresh and you'll always be contributing and, you know, it kind of keeps things exciting. Well put. Uh, what's next for Cincinnati Incorporated? Well, you know, we, we, the most recent thing that we've uh, been uh, involved in is additive manufacturing the last six years. And as you mentioned on your introduction, you know, we were involved with um, printing the world's first 3D printed car called the Strati, uh, which was a collaborative effort with a, a company called Local Motors. Um, and their whole business model is about 3D printing cars. And then Oak Ridge National Labs, which is in Tennessee, and they're a, part, a development partner of ours. So we, you know, that's one area. You know, additive manufacturing has so many applications in and outside of metal fabrication, which is our core business. Um, but you know, we're continuing to develop just you know better technology for similar applications. You know, allowing people to get more productivity out of their machine, less maintenance on their machine. And, um, you know, doing things faster with less support. Training is a big issue today. Getting skilled people involved uh, to learn equipment and stuff is a challenge and that's its own thing. But what we have to do as a manufacturer of machinery is make it easier for people that don't have the training to be able to operate it and do it effectively. So we have to build some intelligence into the equipment um, the best we can. And then of course, automation uh, plays into that too. Um, getting things done with less, you know, manual intervention. And so we, you know, whether it's robotics or uh, material handling systems that move material back and forth, these are all things that all complement our core products. And I think that's where we're definitely seeing the most focus on for our R&D time. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me.